The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. All right, well, good evening again. Um, glad to say that we can now uh, begin. Um, so again, my name is Ben White. I work here at Temple Baptist Church, and I'll be emceeing this evening. just wanted to, on behalf of the staff, welcome you to the church. Uh, if you're new with us, if you've never been here before, we want to extend a special uh, welcome to you. Um, now, before we begin, I just want to run through a, a couple things before we get started. Uh, first of all, you'll notice there's these uh, comment cards on the, uh, the seats around you. I've been told they're, they're not pink, they're not orange, they're salmon-colored comment cards, okay? Uh, so m- make note of that. Anyways, uh, if you look at them, um, as we're going through our evening tonight, if you are interested in learning more about science and Christianity, if you're interested in meeting with someone to hear more about Christianity or the church, uh, whatever the case may be, feel free to check off a box and put your name and email. Uh, there'll be people afterwards in the foyer that can collect these. There'll also be a basket you can drop them in. So just keep that in mind. Uh, the second thing is, um, as advertised, we'll have a Q&A session after uh, Dr. Boot finishes speaking. So if you have questions that arise uh, as he's speaking, feel free to save those until the end. Um, we'll transition to a Q&A, and you'll have plenty of time to ask whatever questions you'd like. Now, of course, the uh, lecture this evening has been named the Chesterton Lecture. Uh, Now, why did we name it that, and who is Chesterton? Uh, G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, was a Christian author, poet, and journalist who was born in the 19th century, lived into the 20th, and wrote uh, a number of books, uh, Christian apologetic works that are very popular, uh, Orthodoxy, The Everlasting Man. But uh, what pervaded Chesterton's work was uh, an interest in the cultural issues of his time and addressing them from his perspective as a a Christian. Um, He had an immense influence doing this, uh, influencing people like C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, uh, a host of scholars, even people that didn't share his beliefs, people like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells. And so our purpose tonight, what we wanted to do in holding this event was to invite uh, someone to come and speak and address an issue of cultural relevance for our time in the same way that G.K. Chesterton did for his. And the purpose of that was not only to be interesting and engage people in the community, uh, but more than that, to really ask ourselves, uh, what uh, what does it mean to answer one of these questions of cultural relevance from a Christian worldview? What does that look like? And whether we're Christian or not, how does that Christian answer to this key cultural question shape the way that we live and what we believe, no matter what belief uh, you hold personally? The question that we're asking tonight is, can science determine human values? which was inspired by uh, Sam Harris. Many of you may know him, kind of uh, the third horseman of the New Atheist uh, movement, Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris. Uh, He wrote a book in 2010 called The Moral Landscape, How Science Can Determine Human Values. And in that book, he argued affirmatively to that question. He argued that science can indeed determine human values, how we uh, can determine right and wrong, how we should live. And so uh, that a book, which has become uh, a bestseller in many ways, 
uh, in our culture and is increasingly a, a question, can science determine human values? It's being asked by uh, intellectuals, uh, especially um, in the New Atheist movement. So we want to address that tonight. And uh, I'm happy to say that we have a speaker who's very competent, I think, to, to do that, to address that question. His name's Dr. Joe Boot, and I'm happy to say he is uh, here in-house. Uh, just to introduce him, uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Boot is a cultural theologian, a leading Christian apologist, and the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto, as well as the founder of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Uh, originally from Great Britain, he served with Ravi Zacharias International Mission, Mi- Ministries excuse me, for seven years as an apologist based in England and Canada. Uh, Joe has spoken all over the world in 25 countries at numerous universities, seminaries, churches, and conferences, from Eton College and Oxford University to Foreman University in Lahore, Pakistan. He regularly addresses medical, legal, and business professionals in North America, Britain, and the Middle East, and has publicly debated leading atheistic thinkers and philosophers in Canada and the United States. Uh, A contributing author to Thomas Nelson's major Christian apologetics volume, Beyond Opinion, uh, Joe's other apologetic works include Searching for Truth, Why Still Believe, and How Then Shall We Answer?, Joe is a general editor of the Ezra Institute's journal, Jubilee, which uh, is, is really cool. It's available for free. Um, and he serves as chancellor for Westminster Classical Christian Academies and can be regularly heard on the John Oakley Culture Class radio program, program or seen on Sun News Network's The Arena. Uh, Joe lives in Toronto with his wife, Jenny, and their three children. So with that introduction, I'd like to welcome Dr. Boot to the stage, and why don't you all give him a round of applause. Thank you very much, and good evening to all of you. It is good to finally be here, just to show you can't rely on science to teach you all values. My GPS failed while I was on the way here. My dad, who's actually uh, drove me here tonight, uh, didn't notice that the kilometers weren't quite ticking away as they should until we were about 20K past our turning. So we had to turn around and uh, come back. We are here, and I'm delighted we're here, and I'm privileged to participate in the Chesterton lecture with you this evening, Can Science Determine Human Values? First of all, let's describe... uh, as we begin this evening, the problem itself. In our time, humanistic thinking about values, including what we might call moral reasoning, has been profoundly influenced by the Darwinian hypothesis. And so we have different voices. We have shrill, atheistic evangelists like Sam Harris, And we have wily, atheistic philosophers, moral philosophers like Peter Singer, who come at these things from different perspectives. And so it came as a shock uh, when recently a leading atheistic philosopher, Thomas Nagel, asserted that in the light of common sense and the question of values, the current orthodox account of evolution is, I quote, an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific hypothesis. And they had to have a quick heretics meeting in England 
to determine what they were going to do with Nagel. Nonetheless, the basic presupposition that almost all humanistic thinkers share is the alleged truth of neo-Darwinism, which most of them think entails necessarily atheism. And as a result, in general, intellectuals holding to a naturalistic Darwinian worldview will argue that modern science, by which they mean the implications of materialism and Darwinism, has destroyed the basis for objective moral values. That's what they argue for the most part. This is uh, typically stated by Nobel laureate Professor Steven Weinberg. This is what he says. Listen closely. The worldview of science is rather chilling. Not only do we not find any point to life laid out for us in nature, no objective basis for our moral principles, no correspondence between what we think is the moral law and the laws of nature, but... The emotions that we most treasure, our love for our wives and husbands and children, are made possible by chemical processes in our brains that are what they are as a result of natural selection acting on chance mutations over millions of years. Living without God isn't easy, but its very difficulty offers one other consolation, that there is a certain honor or perhaps a grim satisfaction in facing up to our condition without despair and without wishful thinking, with good humor, but without God. End quote. Now, that's a very interesting statement. It's, it's typical of the atheistic materialist position on values. Now, notice straight away the philosophical confusion there that conflates the method of science with the religious worldview of atheism and materialism. For Weinberg, as for most of these thinkers, they are one and the same thing. Science is materialism and is atheism. Now, on this view, Weinberg wants to argue that science tells us that there are no objective basis for moral values or principles. There's no point to life. And so we, with grim satisfaction, as he puts it, stare in the face the chilling reality that we are a bundle of chemical processes that evolved a sense of humor. And that is the standard materialist account of reality. So then comes along this rather odd book by a populist atheist, Sam Harris, Sam Harris, to try and argue that while we might not be able to arrive at human moral values in any objective metaphysical sense, that is something beyond science, because he's concerned to deny that there is anything beyond science. There are no metaphysics. Perhaps we can determine proper ends his proper end being global well-being, which we can then label moral truth. And from the conclusions of so-called science, we can replace then the idea of an objective transcendent morality. That's the problem, you see, for these thinkers. If you're an atheist, you're a materialist, the problem you have is the one that Weinberg stated. 
You can't justify values. So what Harris is trying to do is say, well, maybe there is, in fact, a way on the basis of materialism of muddling our way through to an understanding of human value because he resents the fact that he feels that the playing field of morality and values has been dominated by the idea of metaphysics and religious morality, something objective that transcends the physical realm, the physical world. This is what Harris writes, and I quote, To summarize my central thesis... Morality and values depend on the existence of conscious minds and specifically on the fact that such minds experience various forms of well-being and suffering in this universe. Conscious minds and their states are natural phenomena, of course, fully constrained by the laws of nature, whatever these turn out to be in the end. Therefore, there must be a right and wrong answer to the question to questions of morality and values that potentially fall within the purview of science. On this view, some people and cultures will be right to a greater or lesser degree, and some will be wrong with respect to what they deem important in life. Now, I don't think that is a coherent statement, but... I am going to just very briefly analyze that thesis quickly at the beginning here. First of all, we recognize straight away the confusion of this programmatic statement that can't result in transcultural objective values at all. First of all, he talks about the fact that human articulation of morality depends on the existence of conscious minds, which is to say nothing. Because all reasoning depends on the existence of conscious minds. You can't do any thinking... He hasn't said anything interesting there or anything even remotely controversial. All thinking, all reasoning about anything depends on the existence of conscious minds. Second, the experience of well-being and suffering function as Harris's alternate words for good and evil or right and wrong ends. And the analogy he uses in the uh, appendix or afterward to the second edition of that book is, as he responds to his critics, is health, physical health is the analogy he uses. Uh, so that well-being is analogous to physical health, and, uh, and that is good, and evil or suffering is analogous to disease. So there is an equivocation here, because furthering the well-being or proper functioning of biochemical machines does not correspond in any sense to the historic or common sense understanding of what people mean when they speak of good and evil. Nobody means that when they speak of good and evil. So what Sam is really doing is he's moving the goalposts to say, well, what I want to talk about is proper ends, and I'm going to call that end well-being. And Anything that aims at the, my definition of well-being, we're going to call that good. And that's analogous to health. And anything that doesn't hit my definition of well-being, well, that's like suffering. That's evil, and we'll call that analogous to disease. Now, why does he do that? Well, he wants to say that he was criticized in his journalistic book for... Uh, 
not really having a clear uh, articulation of what well-being means. How could that be analyzed scientifically? So he says, well, let's take health as an example. Physical health, he says, you can analyze it to some degree scientifically. Now, when you think about it, of course, that analogy is uh, difficult. So he thinks, well, perhaps if we can scientifically analyze health, even though it's a murky concept to some degree, perhaps we can do the same with the idea of morality. But physical health and disease are more measurable, even though they're difficult, objectively in terms of physical wholeness or balance within the body. Yeah, I mean, we, I could certainly agree that we can say, well, if we know what human being is and we know what health is, then we can more broadly, scientifically measure the idea of physical health uh, than um, we certainly can speak, than we can measure the idea of well-being. But he hasn't helped himself, I don't think, because the subjectivity of the state of well-being is patently obvious to anyone thinking rationally. For example, there are many, many disabled people who express a much greater sense of well-being than the able-bodied. In fact, there are those who have become paraplegic or quadriplegic later in life who report an improved quality of life. Partly because their experience has made them focus on those things that are most important. So <clears throat> there is a great difficulty in uh, defining what well-being actually means. Thirdly, in his thesis, until we know what something is in itself, we can't speak of its well-being or its suffering or health or disease with respect to it. Now, why is that important? Well, in atheistic thinking, we have an evolving universe of flux in which existence, now try and track with me this evening, and this is a bit of a dense lecture, but it has to be because it's a dense subject, okay? <laughs> existence precedes essence. That is, in the, in the doctrine of evolution, there is no normative human nor stable understanding of any aspect of the human person. Because if the evolutionary account of reality is true, you're still evolving. The human race is still evolving. We don't have a definitive. There is no creature, a human being, created in the image of God that has a definitive, normative, stable self-understanding. That's why uh, one of the most uh, growing in popularity doctrines of uh, transhumanism or posthumanism today is looking at how human beings are going to transcend the current ideas of humanity by merging with our technology. So if we do not have a clear understanding of what a human being is, we can't define health. We can't define human well-being. And this is why in our own time we have ideas of gender fluidity and plastic sexuality. There are something between 7, perhaps 14, or according to Facebook, 51 genders. Well, if the very core thing about human beings, our sexuality, our gender, is fluid, then what can we say is normative about a human being? That's why we keep throwing things like... Uh, uh, homosexuality out of the DSM, the handbook of psychology, because the, hum the idea of the human person is constantly shifting in this worldview. 
You see, we live for the humanist in a universe of constant flux and change. And in such a universe, such an evolving world, the defining, measuring, and assessing of well-being, that is the good and suffering evil, let alone trying to analyze the ground of anyone's obligation to pursue global well-being, if that could be ascertained in any particular situation, is clearly subject to so many intangibles, variables, causalities, and layers of psychology that any attempted scientific analysis of these concepts would die the death of a thousand qualifications. It would be completely impossible to define human well-being in some sort of utilitarian moral arithmetic. Fourthly, very quickly, Harris's own religious faith and philosophical leap is made plain in this thesis... In his belief that conscious minds and all their states, he says, are purely natural phenomena. In other words, what he's laying out at the outset as the basis of his thesis is there's no God. Well, I thought this was the thing that he was trying to to prove. So he starts by saying there's nothing outside natural phenomena. So lo and behold, he's not going to discover anything outside material natural phenomena, is he? Because he's already said there there isn't anything. All our states, he said, our mental states, everything, are purely the product of natural phenomena. Which is not a scientific observation. And he says they're fully constrained by the laws of nature, which he goes on to admit are indeterminate. Which is to say, he doesn't know what they are or will turn out to be. Which itself destroys his scientific utilitarianism. No prediction is possible if you don't even know what the laws of nature are going to turn out to be. How can you have science on that basis? Yet by this religious reductionism, he suggests that moral questions can potentially, he says, fall within the purview of science, by which he means the ability to measure whether cultures and their beliefs are right, that is, appropriate for global well-being, or wrong, meaning harmful to global well-being, to a greater or lesser degree, in terms of whether what they deem important in life measures up to his scientific arithmetic of what is in the interests of global well-being as defined by Sam Harris. Now you can see immediately that there is such a fog here of indeterminate notions that this is for all intents intents and purposes, practically useless to anyone. Who's going to read this book and say, right, what shall I do today? I need to act in terms of global well-being as defined and measured scientifically. It is totally arbitrary, and as I'm going to show you, unintelligible on its own terms. Now, consider for a moment as we start this, because we've only just started and you're already tired. (laughs) Consider for a moment the moral landscape of the globe. Harris's book is called The Moral Landscape. Well, let's consider for a moment the actual moral landscape. We have a humanistic minority that believes any number of different things about moral values. They all claim to be scientific as it relates to the concept of human well-being. For some, morality is a human construct. Nothing more that we build into various social contracts to govern society. 
And we think that by these uh, social contracts, we will maintain efficient mutual benefits for the social order. And what happens is that these values, these moralities, change with the time and circumstance. That's the purpose of the social contract. You can change it. Good and bad in this context are the names the dominant group gives to behaviors destructive of the contract. And so are useful ideas to control the social order. In other words, the modern view often is, well, good and bad is just the will of the most powerful at this particular period of time. Uh, this is a way of controlling people and the social order to name certain things good and certain things bad. Some things evil, some things morally right. There's nothing objective about these values, neither do they claim they are. They are under constant revision within the social contract to deal with what they call the changing circumstances. That's why President Obama can come to power and say, I'm all for the Christian family. And then a short while later say, no, I'm all for homosexual marriage, just to use one example, because it is a revolutionary idea. And what was his answer? I've evolved. And the social contract is therefore evolving. evolving. The laws are changing. Human well-being here consists simply in a stable order based on the social science of a social contract. That's one of the dominant views today. For other humanists, good and evil are relative to planetary life, not some myopic social contract with just humans involved, some sort of short-sighted, we call it speciesism, not racism now, speciesism. So that's too myopic. No, on this view, humans are not intrinsically more valuable than any other biochemical organism in the great circle of life. Rather, authentic science offers an ecological vision of morality and justice that means global well-being depends on a radical reduction of the human population. Planetary well-being may well mean the extinction or near extinction of the human race. For evolution has not privileged the human species in the chain of being for automatic survival. Truly ethical living means mother nature should be protected. And this may be from man himself who has become, according to some of these thinkers, like a virus infecting a host. And that's the language they use. If the planet suffers because of humans and good and bad are relative not to the human social contract but planetary well-being, the death of man may be an ultimate good. I don't see how Harris could counter this argument on the basis of his worldview without just another arbitrary leap to say that creatures with articulate speech or greater intelligence have more value than those that don't. But again, in evolutionary terms, if B evolved from A, we can say that B is different from, what, from A, but on what basis do we say it is better? Better relative to what? Better in what sense? There's no measure space there to tell you that this organism is better than this organism. And then we have scientific socialism or Marxism. So that's your kind of environmental movement. I just talked about the, uh, previously the sort of most popular view in the humanities today, social construction. 
Then you've got the scientific socialism or Marxism, which again is probably the dominant political philosophy of the Western elite, where global well-being requires the forced redistribution of people's holdings and an equalized society where the family itself, private property, traditional Western sexual morality are abolished. Global well-being requires a global revolution for the greater good. Resistors are an impediment to this utopian future where man, by technology and science, is remaking or recreating himself through his work. And so eliminating or imprisoning those who disagree is seen as advancing human well-being and reducing overall suffering. Again, on Harris' worldview, there is no adequate objection to this without an arbitrary argument. In other words, just a different subjective measure of what well-being is. Well, then we can say, what about the Islamic worldview? Because that holds that good and bad and moral truth and thus human well-being depend upon the spread and dominance of Islam and Sharia law. And that millions of Muslims hold that Islamic law is the answer to global well-being. But what about the Buddhist? Because the Buddhist is... By contrast, an atheist. And he regards human suffering with indifference, with the saint and the murderer as morally equivalent. Good and evil are the prison of Western logic and Western ways of thinking. For the Buddhist philosopher, there is an ultimate unity of these apparent opposites in a higher plane of understanding, in a higher plane of existence. Physical reality for the Buddhist is less than fully real, and human well-being consists in understanding that, the des- that desire is the source of suffering, and that true well-being comes when you are enlightened to be free from desire by the realization that apparent distinctions are an illusion and that all things are one. That's the Buddhist worldview. Suffering is not the evil. Desire is the evil. That's the source of suffering. Be free from desire, you'll be free from suffering. But the problem is the desire to be free from desire is a desire. (laughs) Hinduism holds the well-being of the race depends upon the cycle of reincarnation and the principle of karma. And social order, the social order flows from it is a caste system from a priestly class to an untouchable class. And that's human well-being. Then there's fascism or national socialism held to a robustly scientific worldview, advancing social Darwinism, advancing the notion that human well-being depended on the elimination of the weak and the breeding of a master race that was in harmony with nature. The eugenic doctrine offered as sound science in the West, even in Canada, led to forced sterilization, has led to mass abortions, euthanasia, and of course in Germany, mercy killing in the name of the good of the people and the survival of the race. Now those are just a fraction of the views on human well-being to be found in various societies, all coalescing in the West today. How are we to measure scientifically which is right in terms of global well-being? The very idea is absurd. 
And Sam Harris himself reveals his own subjective view of human well-being, which it is no surprise to discover just so happens to coincide with modern liberal progressivism. This is what he says, and I quote, The most powerful societies on earth spend their time debating issues like gay marriage when they should, they should be focused on problems like nuclear proliferation, genocide, energy security, climate change, poverty, and failing schools. If our well-being depends upon the interaction between events in our brains and events in the world, and there are better and worse ways to secure it, then some cultures will tend to produce lives that are more worth living than others. Some political persuasions will be more enlightened than others. Whether or not we understand meaning, morality, and values in practice, I've attempted to show that there must be something to know about them in principle. Now, this is contorted moral nonsense now. It amounts to saying this, that chemical events in the brain interact with chemical accident, accidents in the world, which in turn govern our sense of well-being, both personal and social, and there may be a better or worse way to secure that chemical sense of well-being in our heads. And those that pursue Harris's scientifically better way, that's his liberal progressivism, produce lives more worth living and more enlightened than others. Now that's the conclusion of his book, this moral excursus, which would be, I think, laughable if it were not dangerous. Because in Harris's earlier work, The End of Faith, this is what he says, and I quote, the link between belief and behavior raises the stakes considerably. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may be ethical to kill people for believing them. This may seem an extraordinary claim, but it merely enunciates an ordinary fact about the world in which we live. So just take note of that for a moment. Based on this scientific rational worldview, he says, well, some people believe propositions that are really not good and you can't argue them out of them, and it might be ethical to kill them for believing certain things. When this is where a person's rational and scientific perspective leads them, there's obvious reason for concern. Now, given the reality of the actual moral landscape of our culture, which I've just described to you, Harris's own doubt about whether we can actually even understand meaning and morality in practice, I do not understand why he should be so cavalier in accusing most of the world of ignorance, bigotry, and stupidity. After all, moral thought concerns primarily how we ought to live in practice in the world. Not just sitting in a study somewhere with abstract ideas about human well-being. It is astonishing that Harris so easily muddles his pseudo-scientific pragmatics with the idea of objective moral truth. Nonetheless, the idea of a particular view of science, that, that, that a view of science should shape human values and public perception is of the good. Public perception of the good is not new. 
and has been a mentality socially applied in the past. It continues to be utilized today in various ways. I mentioned Marxism and National Socialism. These, those were the conspicuous examples of the 21st century. In our cultural moment, this scientific approach is most clearly seen in the kind of new Marxism, the adaptation of Marx, this contemporary scientific environmentalism that sees radical equalization necessitating mass human death Population reduction, especially of the unborn, as necessary for planetary health and survival. The weakest of all human beings, of course, are the unborn. And if they are a threat to our future well-being, it is argued masses of them must be eliminated because of overpopulation. The idea of a scientific ethic involving the elimination of the weak has a sordid past, as you know. We have noted that Darwinism undergirds much moral reasoning amongst modern intellectuals. Well, Charles Darwin, my fellow Englishman, had a strange, a strange penchant for killing things. He was a very enthusiastic blood sportsman to the point where he shamed and embarrassed his father. He enjoyed torturing animals and by his own confession, delighted in dissecting living animals. In one notorious passage, he spoke of the problem of civilization doing its utmost to, and I quote, check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to degeneration of a domestic race. But expect, excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed, end quote. Now, Darwin put this weakness in humankind uh, down to, and that is the overbreeding of the human population, down to an accidental survival instinct, instinct acquired in the process of evolution, and yet he himself, being an English aristocrat, who didn't have to work, donated money all of his life to Christian missionaries and poorhouses and charities. He was a walking contradiction. Nietzsche pointed that out. He just didn't have the stomach to follow uh, out his theories where they were leading him. And this appears to have been driven by sentiment and a loss of nerve, but his cousin... Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, did not feel any such reticence. He coined the term eugenics and founded the eugenics movement. And Charles Darwin both admired and supported his eugenic, eugenic ideas. In fact, he uh, annotated Galton's writings on this subject and considered Galton's major contribution called Hereditary Genius, quote, a great work. 
Benjamin Weicker has argued that so-called social Darwinism is not a misapplication of Darwin's thought, as commonly argued by apologists for atheism, but is clearly entailed in the theory. Darwinism supplied the rationale for eugenics leading to mass atrocities, and it is now very well documented that Darwin's supposedly scientific ideas had a major influence on both 19th century biological racism and on Nazism and thereby the Holocaust. It is therefore important then that any claim that science can determine human values be treated with a great deal of suspicion and be subject to very careful scrutiny and criticism because ideas have consequences. G.K. Chesterton rightly noted one of my favorite things that he had to say, and I quote, The man who thinks without the proper first principles goes mad. Thinking in isolation and with pride ends in being an idiot. Every man who does not have a softening of the heart must at last have a softening of the brain. Are those who claim science can determine good and evil and moral truth thinking with proper first principles? Well, let's ask now in the remaining hour and a half, what is science? What is science? How long have I got? Half an hour left? One uh, key question we must pose in asking if science can determine human values, obviously, is what is science? And this is something that very often these writers never actually clear up for people. And in so doing, in asking the question, we should notice the origins of the modern scientific method. And they were undoubtedly Christian. Rodney Stark has shown in his work, uh, How the West Was Won, the neglected story of the triumph of modernity, what is today recognized by historians, that there was no such thing as the scientific revolution produced by the so-called Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, like the so-called Dark Ages, are imaginary eras labeled by a group of 18th century philosophers seeking to discredit Christianity amongst the humanistic elite. There was no such thing as the Enlightenment. Think about that for a moment. The Christian era is called the Dark Ages. And then all of a sudden, some 18th century philosophers decide that they have had an Enlightenment in relation to the Dark Ages. Likewise, there was no such thing as a moment of scientific revolution as a product of the Enlightenment. The reality is, of the significant scientists of the 16th and 17th century, 25% were members of the clergy. In fact, 60% of the great scientists, according to Stark, and he lists all of them and gives his rationale, of the era were devout Christians and the rest were conventional Christian believers. 2% were skeptics. This is what Stark notes, quote, Clearly, the superb scientific achievements of the 16th and 17th centuries were the work not of skeptics, but of Christian men. The era of the Enlightenment is as imaginary as the era of the Dark Ages, both myths perpetrated by the same people for the same reasons. What Stark shows is that Christianity was essential to the coming of age of Western science, which is why it has been a purely Western phenomenon. Not now, of course, but because it spread. The assumptions of science have spread. It arose in Christian Europe because only Christian Europe believed science was desirable and possible. 
The basis of their belief, says Stark, was their image of God and his creation. Now, the great English philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead himself admitted and recognized that Christianity was essential to the rise of science because, and I quote, the medieval insistence on, because of the medieval insistence on the rationality of God, conceived as with the personal energy of Jehovah and with the rationality of a Greek philosopher. Every detail was supervised and ordered. The search into nature could only result in the vindication of faith in rationality. End quote. Now, that was an address at Harvard. In other words, Christendom believed a rational, personal, and purposeful God had created a world of law and structure that is both rational and subject to empirical investigation and testing. Impersonal and irrational conceptions of the universe, on the other hand, could not give rise to modern science, and they didn't in the non-European world, as history proves. If the world is not created, having no beginning or predetermined purpose, then it is an eternal mystery, unpredictable and possibly arbitrary, which is precisely the conclusion of Bertrand Russell, one of the famous British atheists of the 20th century. We are a statistical anomaly in the chaos, according to Bertrand Russell. It's arbitrary because brute facts, being unrelated or uncreated by God, are impervious to reason. A brute fact is an uncreated, undefined, and unrelated fact to anything else by any design or mind. It's brute. It's just, a, it's just there. If it's going to have any meaning, you have to give it meaning. And that will, of course, necess necessarily only be for you, not anybody else. Aristotle had denied the universe came into being at a point in time, and so the ancients often treated the ever-changing cosmos as a living thing with natural phenomena occurring in some instances, they said, because of motive. Motives. Well, of course, we believe only persons have motives. Such a pagan view of a divinized, inanimate, natural world could not birth modern science. Aristotle was not concerned with science proper. Some people think he was. He wasn't. And Stark says, and I quote, None of Aristotle's work constituted science because his explanations were not linked to systematic observations. He failed to recognize such tests were relevant. He just thought his reasoning about the world was sufficient. Starkness concludes, and I quote, science arose in the West and only in the West precisely because the Judeo-Christian conception of God encouraged and even demanded this pursuit. In short, Christianity provided the presuppositions necessary for the advance of science. Now, this is interesting because science requires certain things to be believed about the universe before we can apply the scientific method. It turns out that those beliefs include a rational, purposeful creation that operates in terms of law-like regularity and consistency, where the abstract ideas of our minds are directly related to the concrete world of the cosmos. And they're correlated in such a way that science is possible. Think about that for a moment. Why should the ideas arising in your head bear any relationship to the external world? 
Science further requires the belief that we are able to posit hypotheses and rationally test these to uncover that which is true and rational about the physical universe. We do not determine in science the rational order. We discover it. Einstein acknowledged as a pantheistic skeptic that on his worldview, I quote, a priori, that is before uh, experience, one should expect a chaotic world which cannot be grasped by the mind in any way, end quote. The miracle, as he saw it, was that somehow knowledge expands through the explanatory power of reason and investigation. And for him, this was a miracle and a mystery. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that the universe is comprehensible. (laughs) Because he didn't have the God of Scripture, so that was a mystery to him. Given the metaphysical rational basis for the rise of science in the West, it would be strange indeed if that science were then used in an attempt to condemn the Christian metaphysics that birthed it, i.e. the existence of a creator that makes science intelligible. It is thus ironic that in the name of science, Harris, and others like him, refers to faith-based religion, by which he means Christianity, as, I quote, the great engine of ignorance and bigotry. End quote. A rudimentary understanding of the history of Christendom that gave us science and the university would help Harris considerably. The self-contradictory attempt to use science to overthrow metaphysics, since science rests on metaphysics, illustrates how important it is that we do not confute the scientific method and philosophy or try and collapse science and philosophy as Sam Harris does in the moral landscape. It is true that they are involved in each other. You can't separate them out completely as though they don't touch on one another. Facts and values or fact and meaning are related together because for facts to be facts, they're already as some philosophers of science would say theory-laden, they're already being interpreted in terms of an overall metaphysical view of the world. When I look at the world and look at the facts of my experience, I'm interpreting them in terms of a set of assumptions I have about the world. So there is a relationship. However, quite obviously, not every abstract generalization that arises in my mind is scientific in the strict sense. For example, the basic... Who's still with me? Who's taking a quick nap? Okay? Because this is just great stuff. You can use this everywhere now. You know, when you get home, you can use this. Now, think about this for a moment. You can, you can watch the video again, listen to the recording, and buy my books. Now, the basic abstract generalization that is made by materialist atheists like Harris is, and this is a word to take home, reductionistic. They hold that all reality is just matter in motion. There's no spiritual, there's no spiritual reality, there's no mind in that sense. This means that all human experience and knowledge is accounted for in terms of physicalism, with mental events being merely, now this is a difficult one if you haven't got your false teeth in, epiphenomenal, that is, emergent properties of matter. In other words, all there is is the physical world, and as chemicals uh, shake down and, 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 and electrons fire and so forth, there are emergent properties like thinking that are essentially reducible to the material, but they are emergent from the physical. 
And as a result, only empirically justified, that is, scientific propositions are a real source of human knowledge. Yet this belief itself is not scientific. No one ever empirically observed and tested the proposition that all reality is material and that human experience and knowledge are merely the emergent properties of matter. That's a metaphysical belief about the nature of reality. Indeed, on the materialist basis, rational thought itself, the logical reasoning of the mind, which of course is immaterial. You haven't seen one of your thoughts, have you? Have you heard one of your thoughts? If I cracked your head open, would I say, oh look, there's one of his thoughts? No. If that is true about the world, reasoning is destroyed. Your thinking is just brain exhaust. That's all, that's what that means. It's brain exhaust. And I've got one type of exhaust, combustion, and you've got another, and that's all there is to it. There's no way of saying my brain exhaust is right and yours is wrong. So all the thinking you're doing now and trying to track with my excellent lecture <laughs> is where you're reasoning and trying to rationalize and logically follow. Your thinking has nothing to do with logic or reason. It's just a firing of atoms in the brain. Moreover, the reality is that we do not really know what matter and energy are. And Harris himself acknowledges we don't know what the laws of nature will turn out to be in the end. So how can we know what the emergent properties of matter are and we don't even know what energy is? Now, we can talk about how energy moves, how it seems to behave. But what is it? Nobody knows. Clearly, then, the reductionist assumption is not a deliverance of science. It's a religious philosophy that is used to control all the conclusions that are admissible. Now, if we rightly define science, which I haven't yet done, we immediately see that there is no sense in which science can determine values like good and evil, which require an objective and transcendent referent. That is neither a chemical event in my brain, where I'm just imprisoned in the ideas of my own mind. We call that solipsism nor an arbitrary preference or taste, subjective taste, we call that subjectivism, nor merely a cultural consensus relative to time and circumstance, we call that relativism. Stark's definition of science is excellent and I think uncontroversial. He says, quote, science is best defined as a method used in organized efforts to formulate explanations of nature, always subject to modification and correction through systematic observations. Did you get that? So, science properly conceived, he says, is a method of formulating explanations for natural phenomena by observation and testing. It's a method we developed because we thought in a particular way about the world. Okay, that we can test things, we can do experiments, they're repeatable. We make observations. We can then come up with a hypothesis and then test that hypothesis. But a method for investigating and describing physical reality cannot define or prescribe moral reality any more than a method of painting a landscape with brushes and oils can define aesthetic beauty. Indeed, since scientific conclusions are always subject to modification and correction through further observation, moral truth 
good and evil could never be defined scientifically without risk that the following day or the following week or the following month, a new observation or description about some aspect of reality would tear down our entire moral edifice so that good was evil and evil was good in a manner like Galileo's overturning of the Ptolemaic understanding of the solar system. Do you get that? So, let me try and put that another way. If moral truth were dependent on scientific measurement and observation, let's say I were to say all swans are black. Or let's say something more realistic. All swans are white. Because I'd only ever encountered white swans. So I reached the scientific conclusion based on my exposure to the evidence that swans are white. So what is necessary for my whole scientific view of swans to come crashing down? You see a black swan. Okay? And then my whole uh, hypothesis is overturned. Now, if moral truth were like that, somebody's measurement or observation of something could then completely overturn morality. And evil could suddenly be good, and good could then be evil. Is that how people think about morality? And ethics and good and evil? No, of course not. How then do some people try to move from a method for hypothesizing explanations of phenomena phenomena, to objective moral values for defining good and evil? Well, think about it. No one has ever seen a moral law or tripped over one or measured one in any spatio-temporal sense. How could you test by empirical observation what moral truth is? In fact, believe it or not, we don't see any laws of any description. You don't see physical laws either. When I drop my watch, like this, and we're dealing with the relationship of physical bodies to each other, we hypothesize a law of gravity. But you don't see a law. You see succession. And you hypothesize that there must be a law about reality. Now, nobody trips over a... And, and that's how we... That's true even of the physical world. Right? Of physical things. What of things that are non-physical? Now, we can observe it's true good and evil acts and thus see persons act in relation to moral truth, but it is the immaterial reality of moral truth, good and evil, in that metaphysical sense that allows us to evaluate or judge whether an action is good or evil whether somebody has acted in a good or bad way. We evaluate it, not based on what we observe, but we evaluate what we observe on the basis of what we believe and know about good and evil. We do not set a subjective or relativistic sociological standard like global well-being before our minds as a hypothesis and then measure by some ethical arithmetic whether someone has acted accordingly and then declare them post facto good or evil based on the consequences for global well-being, whatever that actually means. In other words, this is just impossible nonsense. That's the sort of short version of the talk. Sam Harris has fallaciously argued that we can, in principle, think about moral truth, and I'm quoting, in the context of science. 
But that is at best ambiguous. What does he mean? That we can d- discover whether scientists are acting ethically? Well, I agree with that. But that's not what he means, of course. Where am I? There. Clearly, he's working from a very different understanding of the meaning of science and morality than those historically and generally accepted. He's doing philosophy. He's doing metaphysics. Harris is... I'm not saying he's stupid in the sense that he's unintelligent. Harris is surely able to draw the elementary distinction between empirical observation and testing that offers explanations of the operation of physical things and the project of trying to draw out moral implications from certain metaphysical beliefs based on frameworks about reality that are philosophical. I'm sure Harris understands that distinction, but he's troubled by it. Because it means there's a realm of knowledge and understanding that isn't controllable or reducible to science as he conceives of it. Harris's solution to this distinction in the moral landscape is just old-fashioned radical reductionism and essentially a redefinition of what moral reality is. What he believes is that by subsuming everything that exists under the category of natural phenomena, he thereby makes everything everything that exists a scientific question and susceptible then to a scientific explanation and solution. So if you can make morality and moral truths a subset of natural phenomena, then of course you can make it, you can say that, well, science can deal with it. Even the question of moral truth and law. And so he thinks you can dispense really with metaphysics, that is, metaphysical presuppositions and and religion, and now address all those areas that were once thought outside the purview of science. You will find very, very few people, and certainly very few capable philosophers who agree with Harris, by the way. This book was absolutely lambasted in uh, in the reviews. It is this belief that is terrifying in itself because if man is just a natural phenomena and completely explainable as such, he's an object of study. And his problems have a scientific or experimental solution. You can fix people scientifically. Harris even posits that we might be able to cure evil. This brings every aspect of the human person under physical laws or abstract generalizations of the latest scientific paradigm, making us all susceptible to the laboratory and scalpel to fix our illness or disease. But as we have seen, this step itself is not scientific, it's arbitrary, it's an unintelligible leap. Moral truth, good and evil, are relative either to man or to God. That's the simple dichotomy. In terms of materialism, Harris's view... We are biochemical objects and can determine our own ends or purpose, that's good or well-being, individually or collectively. If we are the source of definition for morality with tentative, pragmatic social measurements, then there is actually no longer any unchanging, objective, absolute moral truth in the universe, and certainly no obligation for us to obey the tentative moral arithmetic of some science professor. What that really leaves, and what some people have noted about this idea, is that it leaves the terrifying prospect that science, if proper ends and the good or morality can be measured and defined scientifically, you're only left with coercion, scientific coercion, 
a terrifying ground for a moral order. Whereas the Christian view is that God alone provides an objective and absolute basis in his being, nature, and law for human moral action to be measured and judged. Now, let me try and wrap this up in just a few moments with highlighting perhaps some of the most critical problems. Uh, We've discussed some of them with the idea that science can determine values. Having discussed the origin and meaning of science and the scientific method, we see there's a basic category mistake here in thinking of metaphysical beliefs as the chilling worldview uh, of science, because science is not a worldview. Now, the, the, the media makes this mistake all the time. Science is a method, it's a tool, it's not a worldview. It's put to service of various worldviews. Various worldviews seek to use the tool of science. Science in itself is not a worldview. It's because they've collapsed atheism and materialism with science that they speak that way. It is simply a tool and, it can, and can in no meaningful sense be the source or definer of morality. Think about it this way. Let me give you an illustration. Like a knife. You can use a knife. It can be employed in the service of various beliefs for good or ill in the same way that the scientific method can. You can, with a knife, you can use a slicing method to kill people or cut the Christmas turkey. for family dinner. But the knife in itself is neither right nor wrong. It's neither true nor false. It can't tell you whether slicing up a human being is good or evil. It's just a knife and it's a cutting technique. Harris' abortive attempt to bring every question under the rubric of natural phenomenon doesn't help him to decide morality scientifically anyway. Because even if everything is simply natural phenomena, matter plus time plus chance, which phenomena are good and which are evil? Which are right, which are wrong? Natural phenomena just are. They're just natural phenomena. How can the idea that everything is a product of purely natural events give you moral law and good and evil? Harris' answer is just to destroy the ideas of good and evil and redefine them in terms of this global utility. A further, and I think most serious difficulty for materialists like Harris is that their determined is the very notion of freedom and thereby moral action. Now, this is really important if there was one take-home for you. If the other stuff is already sort of drifting out the brain exhaust of your mind, then try and retain this one. For Sam Harris and others like Daniel Dennett, decisions, goals, efforts, etc. are just causal states of the brain which lead to specific behaviors, which in turn lead to outcomes in the world. As a result, they say that human evil is simply a natural phenomena and comparable to the hostility of chimpanzees to outsiders from their group. Harris arbitrarily feels confident, however, that we are consciously poised to engineer our future, uh, our future and further evolution, perhaps even cure evil. He thinks biologically we're on the verge of engineering our own evolution. This is transhumanism or posthumanism. But he appears not to notice the contradiction between the moral choice to engineer ourselves away from bad evolutionary constraints and his physical determinism. What is that? Well, this is how he states it. Listen closely, because you you will catch the absurdity of the situation. He says this, all of our behavior can be traced to biological events about which we have no conscious knowledge. This has always suggested that free will is an illusion. 
thoughts and intentions are caused by physical events and mental stirrings of which we are not aware. Thoughts, moods, and desires of every sort simply spring into view and move us or fail to move us for reasons that are, from a subjective point of view, perfectly inscrutable. That means we don't understand. From the perspective of your conscious mind, you are no more responsible for the next thing you think and therefore do than you are for the fact that you were born into this world. Where Where our intentions themselves come from, however, and what determines their character in every instant remains perfectly mysterious. Now, if you didn't catch that gobbledygook, for the next several pages of the book, Harris contorts himself by all manner of rationalization, environmental gibberish, and imaginary flights of fancy to try and retain the idea of a rational justice system or any sense of moral responsibility, which he still claims we have, on the basis that your thoughts and intentions just spring up. You have no control uh, over your thoughts or actions. Determinism. So, of course, in that situation, how could you have a justice system? How could you have a functioning society? Well, he thinks that we somehow still can, but he doesn't show us how or why. In fact, he speaks of people's intention to do harm and their harboring of intentions as blameworthy, having just explained that they don't know their intentions until they arise and all thought is just chemical reactions. He does admit and rejoices in the admission that the logic of all retributive punishment is called into question by his Determinism, which quite obviously is a denial of real human responsibility for moral action. He writes, and I quote, listen again, and I'm not making this up. This is in the book. Men and women on death row have some combination of bad genes, bad parents, bad ideas, and bad luck. Which of these qualities exactly were they responsible for? In fact, it seems immoral not to recognize just how much luck is involved in morality itself. (laughs) I love that statement. That's just a gem. Harris is now caught in obvious gibberish. And nowhere is his elementary category mistake or equivocation with the term morality more plain. How can people have bad genes bad ideas, bad parents in a universe where the concept of bad is meaningless because of absolute determinism. By what can we measure bad? How can genes or ideas be bad in an evolutionary and materialist world? Genes simply are. I'm not talking about blue genes now. I'm talking about our genes. And since all mental intentions and actions, like our genes, are natural phenomena outside the control of any person, in fact, there are no persons in his worldview, just biochemical machines, this is just deterministic environmentalism. Harris's concept of a judicial system amounts to a so-called scientific solution. That is, some biochemical machines or units should have their movements restricted because of the risk they pose to the well-being that is functioning of other biochemical machines. And that's his concept of justice. Furthermore, how can luck be involved in moral decisions? If morality is a matter of luck, there is no such thing as morality and ethics. 
Harris's sole goal, you see, is the destruction of religious metaphysics. He states it this way, and I quote, Few concepts have offered greater scope for human cruelty than the idea of an immortal soul that stands independent of all material influences, ranging from genes to economic systems. This determinism is the critical internal incoherence of all attempts to make moral values defined by so-called laws of science. That is, a physic deterministic reductionism. You love, that's a lovely flow of words. A physic deterministic reductionism. Reducing everything to a physical determinism. Destroys both freedom and ethics simultaneously and renders good and evil meaningless. There can be no moral values without moral actors. There can be no moral values without moral action. Harris denies any real freedom, so denies moral action, and as a result, denies all ethics and undercuts any intelligible concept of good and evil. For those of you who are entirely shattered, you will be glad to know I have just a couple more things here. And then we're done. This is my conclusion. Thomas Nagel, who I started with, a thoughtful and more careful atheistic philosopher, a capable one, in his short work, Mind and Cosmos, which if you're struggling to sleep one night, I recommend you flick through the pages of and read, has seen through the empty cupboard of this chemical materialist reductionism And he favors a form of monism in which the universe is somehow prone to generate life and mind. What does that mean? Well, he simply cannot accept the current neo-Darwinian account of reality. This is what he says, and I quote, The world is an astonishing place. This is an atheist, don't forget. And the idea that we have in our possession the basic tools needed to understand it is no more credible now than it was in Aristotle's day. That it has produced you and me and the rest of us is the most astonishing thing about it. End quote. Nagel, as an atheist, admits as well in this book that his rejection of God as the designer and source of value is based on, quote, an ungrounded assumption of my own. He likewise admits the intelligibility of the world is no accident and is a fundamental feature of the universe, not a biochemical byproduct of some other development that has no reference to the mind. In other words, materialism. He says its intelligibility is basic to it. It's intrinsic to it. Critically, regarding morality and value, Nagel has argued, and he is the best refutation of Harris, although he never names Harris, that from an orthodox Darwinian point of view... The very idea of real values is like a wheel that spins without being attached to anything. It's totally superfluous. This is the impression you, read, you have reading Harris's book, The Moral Landscape. He is a spinning wheel, not attached to anything, on the basis of his own worldview, trying to find values out of his scientific determinism. Nagel writes this, and I quote, listen closely. This is the last lengthy quote you will have to tolerate. The real badness of pain... And the ability to recognize that badness are completely superfluous in a Darwinian explanation of of our aversion to pain. So far as natural selection is concerned, pain could perfectly well be in itself good and pleasure in itself bad, or more likely, both of them in themselves valueless. 
From a Darwinian perspective, our impressions of value, if construed realistically, are completely groundless. And if that is true for our most basic responses, it is also true for the entire elaborate structure of value and morality that is built up around them by practical reflection and cultural development. Just as scientific realism would be undermined if we abandon a realistic interpretation of the perceptual experiences on which science is based. In other words, if we construe morality as we encounter it, as we experience it, now as we would like it to be in some sort of delusional metaphysicalism, he says, unless we abandon our common sense, the way we encounter the world, uh, he says we cannot arrive at a conclusion that says we can find real values from the Darwinian account of reality. He says in the same way that we would have to, uh, we, we would, if we abandon the common sense realism of saying there's a real world out there and my mind is correlated to it so I can understand it. Both would collapse. Moral reasoning would collapse in the first instance. Science would collapse in the second The idea of real values from the materialist Darwinian worldview must be seen as an illusion and their claim to scientific certitude, says Nagel, the heroic triumph of ideological theory over common sense. But since we all recognize inescapably by our nature the reality of true moral value, good and evil, every one of us here, we are confronted at every turn, even in our own being, with the reality of God. Or we have to try and escape into some other rationalization of why we recognize moral truth, good and evil, right from wrong, and feel guilt if we don't align ourselves with it. Nagel seeks refuge himself in the arbitrary notion of a cosmic predisposition to life that is inherently valuable, wherein the universe is gradually waking up in terms of a natural teleology, which means the universe is God. That we must think in terms of, he says, we must rethink, go back and rethink the nature and character of the universe and think of the universe in terms of mind, which is paganism, which would not have given rise to modern science. It's Hegelian pantheism, if you want the technical term, really. Nagel doesn't want the living God because God's holiness doesn't just mean abstract moral values but moral accountability. There can be no true morality, good and evil, without the living God. And as Donald Forbes has put it, when we treat anything as if it were simply an object for our inspection and analysis, we obscure its inherent beauty and goodness. Modern science has this obscuring, stifling, suffocating effect because it implicitly denies the possibility of understanding things through the conception of purpose. Only persons purpose anything. Only persons act freely, morally, and moral action and freedom are involved in each other, and without them, there is no such thing as good and evil. The tri-personal God of Scripture is the only intelligible source of definition in all things. The tools of science useful in in their place offer us no values. God alone is the source of all value and meaning, and through him we discover the value and purpose of all things.
Thank you very much for your time and attention. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Boot, for your talk. Um, what really struck me, what I really appreciated what you said, was at the outset um, you are talking about how uh, people like Sam Harris and his book The Moral Landscape seem to um, use terms like the consciousness of all well-beings, human welfare, and they seem to get it from this uh, ether uh, where you don't really know where it's coming from. They don't present any warrant or any justification for why they... Uh, want to seek the welfare of human beings and where they even uh, have the, the underlying worldview and philosophy to use those terms in the first place. Where do we get right and wrong from? Where does Sam Harris form those notions? And I think you kind of uh, really went at the, the problem of doing that and that uh, where we get uh, our human values from, our sense of right and wrong, really requires a lot of thought, a lot of philosophy, religious thinking. Historically, that's the way that I think it's always been, as you pointed out in talking about uh, scientists who were uh, Christians and uh, the importance of the Christian worldview and the belief in God in helping us to uh, have an objective morality. So thanks for that reminder. And indeed, uh, it does require a lot of thinking, a lot of thought to uh, provide a justification for our morals, which I think is a good uh, exhortation for us in our society where that is often not understood. So... Thanks for that. Uh, we're going to transfer to uh, the Q&A session, so the mics are set up. Thank you, John. Um, we encourage anyone, uh, no matter what you thought of the talk, no matter where you're at uh, in your own beliefs, to come up and ask a question. Uh, feel free to make it critical. Feel free to be nice. Uh, well, actually, I'll change that. Always be nice, but feel free to be critical or affirming of what Dr. Boot said. We welcome any kind of question. We just ask that you be gracious. Uh, to begin, uh, I have a question of my own, actually. Um, Joey, you talked about um, the need to believe in God. Now, you yourself are a, a Christian pastor. You're a Christian. So what's so great about Christianity? I mean, we've been talking about science. We've been talking about morals. And you yourself are a Christian. Um, what makes Christianity so great that it can cohere with science, with a scientific uh, method really well, and uh, how is the Christian worldview great in that it um, allows us to form uh, morals and ethics that aren't um, obscure like Sam Harris uh, is in his book, or that are um, logically incoherent? What makes Christianity so great in those two spheres, uh, in dealing with science and in dealing with morals? And, and the reason why I ask that is um, I was uh, just actually just getting my hair cut this week, and uh, don't worry, this is going somewhere. Um, <laughs> I was just getting my hair cut this week, and I was talking with my hairdresser, and I mentioned that I work here at Temple Baptist Church. And um, she knew that we uh, are here. She knew that our building's here. She's lived in Cambridge a long time. But then she asked me a question that was really instructive for me. She said, so what kind of a church is that? Is it, is it Christian or is it Jewish? And um, that was striking for me because uh, I know that if it's a Baptist church, it has to be Christian. I've never heard of a, a Baptist mosque, uh, a Baptist rabbinic school. Uh, a Baptist church means it's Christian. 
Um, but what that reminded me of is that in our world, in our society, uh, there are a lot of people who, because Christian worldviews are no longer dominant, there's this um, confusion of religions. All religions are thrown into a box, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever the case may be. Uh, people have a hard time understanding the distinctions between all of them. And so looping back to the question I was asking then, what makes Christianity so great? What's the point uh, on these two spheres we've been talking about, science and morals? Well, I mean, that, that could be a, another lecture in itself. Um, you know, what makes Christianity so great? Uh, well, let's start, just say, uh, put it very simply. The Gospel of John uh, opens with the uh, statement, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And there you have, the uh, first of all, the distinction within the being of God himself. The Word w- was with God, and the Word was God. So there you have an intimation right there of the Trinity, the tri-personal character of God. For to be a person, you have to be relational. If God were a monadic singularity, he couldn't be personal because he wouldn't be in relationship to anything else. So God in his own being is the foundation and starting point for defining, naming uh, of anything, creation of anything. Everything that came into existence has been called into existence by him. And its potentialities, its values, its meaning are all defined by God already. We discover God's meaning. Let me illustrate it this way. When I was a small boy, I used to do uh, connect-the-dot puzzles. Do you remember those? Before there was Nintendo and, uh, what is it now, Wii and Xbox, there were connect-the-dot puzzles. And the idea of a connect-the-dot puzzle is that, if you've never heard this analogy before, uh, Sometimes the dots have got numbers with them, but the idea is that you teach a child, a child learns to draw and recognize shapes by connecting the, the dots that seem initially random. You look at the page, it's just a bunch of dots. But when you connect the dots, the author's intention, that is the meaning, emerges. Now what the Bible is telling us is that uh, the dots, that is every aspect of our experience, uh, there is a meaning already there. God tells us how to connect dots. Now, when a child connects the dots, well, it's a house. Oh, it's a car. Oh, it's a giraffe. Because those, the particulars of, uh, of that puzzle are not arbitrary. They don't invent the meaning. They discover the meaning. And that's science, in that sense. They discover the meaning that's already there. It's also philosophy. When I encounter the world and you encounter the world as a philosopher, because every human being is a philosopher, we are concerned with philosophy, philo, sophia, wisdom, the love of wisdom. We try and think about life and all of those things. When we come to the world, uh, we, we don't uh, give the world its meaning. Now, that's what the man, the person without God thinks they are doing. In fact, that's what they have to do. Because they are confronted by a sea of unrelated particulars if they were consistent with what they profess to believe. And they would have to, as a God, small g, give the universe meaning for them. But of course, they're not me. 
So I also have the right to approach the universe in a completely original fashion as a god, small g, and discover my meaning. And of course, then you've got sheer relativism. You could never have any truth of any kind. So what happens is really is that what Christianity is telling us is that God is the author, he's the creator, he's the designer of all things, he is personal, he's made a personal universe, a personal world in which we, even our environment, is uh, that everything is personal to God. It's like, imagine going into your home and uh, you're walking around your front room and there's a, there's a picture of your holiday in Tahiti and then there's a, there's a wedding picture and then there's some of your children and then there's a a chair that your grandmother gave you and so on. Everything in your world, in that world of yours, is personal to you. You placed it, you chose it, you bought it. Well, everything in the universe is personal to God. Nothing impersonal about the universe. And it bears his meaning. And we have two choices. We kick against that meaning and try to deny it and rationalize ourselves out of it. Or we think, as Copernicus said, think God's thoughts after him. And we discover God's meaning, and it is deep as the ocean. Right? It, it is, it's inexhaustible. But we can encounter bits of it, and that's, what, that's how, why Christianity gave birth to science. Because it was a personal world with intentionality and law and order and structure that we could discover, not the arbitrary world of the ancient philosophers where natural forces were essentially personified as gods and the universe was potentially arbitrary and you had physicians uh, who could maybe manipulate reality and heal you in terms of various different gods or whatever. Both Plato and Aristotle were occultists in their thinking. So you had a, non, you had a magical worldview there. It was Christianity Biblical faith that gave rise to the scientific method. And then the same is true in the area of morality. God, morality is not above God. It's not a law that he is confirming himself to that is beyond him. Neither is it something that he decided one day, well, let me think up 10 commandments that would be really good. Um, No, morality, moral truth is God's being. It's an expression of his being. It's who God is in himself. God is love. That's why God must be tripersonal. Who was God loving before the foundation, before he created anything, if he's a monad, if he's the God of Islam? Who was Allah loving before he created the universe? You have really there pantheism. Monadic conceptions of God reduced to a pantheistic conception of the world because there's no true personality there. There's nothing relational. Persons are relational. You have to be related to something to know you're a self. So, for example, how do you know you're a self? You have individual identity. Well, you're not the person sat next to you. You're not the ceiling. You're not the chair. You're not the floor. So you have a sense of otherness, separateness, yeah? Trans, which is what transcendence means, separateness. So God, in his own being, is transcendent. He's in relationship. And you cannot have morality. You cannot have moral truth or law unless something transcends us. Otherwise, everything is just a sea of relativism. It's your, you've got your morality, I've got mine, you've got yours, you've got yours, because there's nothing that transcends us or our minds or our personal experience. And we all recognize it because if you're cross with me tonight because of this talk, it's because you think I've done something wrong or said something wrong or been too dismissive or too unkind or, and you want to hold me accountable for that. 
Because you recognize there is a standard beyond me and you to which I should conform myself. And that's why we get angry about anything. Somebody cuts us off in traffic. Right? Or uh, even Richard Dawkins doesn't like somebody misrepresenting his work. Well, why not? On his worldview, it should be fine. But no, he's living in God's world, in God's universe. So he recognizes morality that transcends, transcends him to which he wants to call, hold other people to account. And that's the beauty of Christianity. To deny it, you acknowledge it. Thank you. Uh, if anyone has a question, uh, if anyone has a question, I, I see you raising your hands. Can you please make your way to the mic, uh, if you don't mind, just to ask it into the mic so everyone can hear? They're up here at the front in the aisles. It's a long walk. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, I have two questions to ask you, basically for the whole thesis that you brought up. At the same time, um, I brought this off. Um, I brought these uh, questions to myself in group sessions that I've had. Uh, I have basically uh, Christian group processions talking about specific issues based on these things. Yeah. And I have two, uh, basically two personal questions to ask you. Um, the first question I have is, and I'm going to explain it myself just like how you did just a second ago, <laughs> is basically um, I've noticed that science has evolved to a certain point where it has split its opinions to the point where Darwinism or actual Darwinian science in general, has basically even discredited science itself from other people of different, uh, uh, different professions. For example, archaeology, uh, engineering sciences, whatever. The point is, and I'm going to use this as one question for you. Has Darwinian science in your opinion, made itself as its own religion or as a definition as a religion because it is, in my opinion, uh, it's made itself into a, a, to the point where it's basically turned into its own club and it's turned its own, it's basically turning itself on its own people in, in its own right. Even the people who are even, have no belief in God in the first place. The second question I have for you is, um, if people have even researched or even come to the idea of transhumanism, while going through my research through it and actually pursuing it myself and understanding it, transhumanism has many different definitions of it by, by, the, the, by the grasp of how human civilization will actually either evolve or destroy itself. But my question for you is, is transhumanism the pursuit of God, or is transhumanism in their standards for Darwin, Darwinian science in, in some way, is it the pursuit of becoming a God? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because that answer has been asked many times for thousands of years, but different definitions, but this is the version that we are at. Well, mm. This is the actual question right now of our generation that we must ask, actually ask, in my mm. opinion. Okay. Yeah, but I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you. Okay, well, uh, quickly, um, evolution is a very, very old religion. It's not new. 
one of the things that people are fooled into thinking is that uh, this sort of Englishman in the, the cold light of uh, scientific experimentation and observation on the Galapagos Islands on his trip around the world on the HMS Beagle suddenly stumbled on a truth that nobody else had ever thought of before and, and came up with the idea of evolution. That, that is a, that's just a myth. Um, and uh, I've written on that subject. But the idea of the doctrine of evolution goes back to the ancient Babylonians. It was there in, uh, amongst the ancient Greeks. They had quite a developed doctrine of evolution. You had the Greek chain of being as well. Uh, it's there even in the totemism of um, American Indian religion, uh, that what is represented in the totem pole. So you have the only alternate worldview from an origins point of view to, to, to creation has always been evolution. And this is why when Darwin uh, advanced uh, ver- ideas that he got from various places and then offered, tried to offer a mechanism to explain it, um, this is why people like Dawkins have said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Because before, it, um, it very much felt like there was absolutely no independent verification for this religious hypothesis of everything springing into existence from nothing, from nowhere, and uh, um, uh, biogenesis, just the idea that things just arose and created themselves, uh, and so on. And by the way, chemical evolution is at very much an impasse right now. So the answer to the first question is yes, evolution, as I tried to explain in my lecture, as a doctrine, as Thomas Nagel has pointed out, is, is not an, uh, any longer a scientific hypothesis that has uh, been uh, strongly supported. It is a metaphysical belief system about the world, and it's clung to intensely because the only al- real alternative is either a return to a, uh, to a pagan view of the world, a kind of uh, monistic pantheism, which is also evolutionary in its understanding of the world, or God. And which is why you can't allow a divine foot in the door. And this is why there's been an attempt to collapse science, a method, with the metaphysical, with the metaphysical beliefs or religious assertions of the doctrine of evolution, which is a very ancient doctrine of life. The uh, ancient Greeks, the ancient Babylonians, spoke of a watery chaos out of which everything, including the gods, evolved. And so all Darwin did was to put a slightly modern veneer, a pseudoscientific veneer, in terms of ob- ob- observations about speciation. Uh, so, yes, we are. I think we're in a very interesting point in the sciences with, it, with this respect right now because more and more scientists and philosoph- philosophers of considerable standing are expressing either in public or in private their serious doubts about the... And I know for a fact, because he says so in Mind and Cosmos, that was influenced by the writings of Stephen Mayer, who's been publishing on intelligent design for quite some time. And there are lots of people in the academies. And interestingly enough, in Eastern Europe and other parts, of it, outside the West, scientists are very ready to express their doubts and disagreement with that particular religious view as being not supported by the science. And I think we're going to see in my own lifetime a new paradigm emerge that Thomas Nagel is kind of suggesting, I think we're going to see an attempt to move back to a a more um, uh, robustly pagan understanding of the universe than a sort of uh, Christian view of science trying to be welded with a pagan concept, 
which the concept of evolution uh, that fish became philosophers actually is, that atoms just become antelopes. I mean, that's the idea of it. So it is a religion. Secondly, transhumanism, and I will answer this quicker. Yes, it's the project to be a god. It's not the pursuit of God. The, uh, the thinkers and writers within the transhumanist movement believe in an omega point, uh, a point at which we will have merged in such a way with our own technology that there will be one ultimate consciousness. And they think the internet, which is speeding up faster and faster, is, is one big step towards that. Soon we'll be able to access the, intellect, uh, the internet directly through the cerebral cortex. We won't need any... Uh, uh, other physical things like a keyboard or anything like that and that we will be able to directly and and they don't think this is science fiction they see this coming uh, in the next that kind of technology in the next 15 to 20 years and uh, they believe ultimately that and it's because of the doctrine of evolution you see what they what they believe is this it's really a eugenic idea man's uh, the universe has become self-conscious with man so the universe has woken up with us, because we think and reason, uh, and we're part of nature, so obviously it's the universe that has, has uh, woken up, and we are now custodians of our own evolution. We can control the future of our own evolution, and the goal is to get back to uh, uh, oneness, essentially, that there will, be, there will be an omnipotence and omniscience about the human person. And uh, that can only, um, a unity about the human person as well. So that, this is why there's such a drive for equalization and um, uh, a desire for what we would call collectivist politics, is that, is that the universe is, 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 is fragmented, it's alienated from itself. We're alienated from each other, and our separate consciousness is alienating from one another. So the goal is to merge into one superconsciousness. And, uh, or at least have access to a super-consciousness. And then perhaps even you might be sat in a chair uh, and you might have an avatar, a, another physical bionic body that is actually your... You function, your consciousness functions through that. And they talk about downloading themselves into a machine and, and entering a digital heaven for all eternity. This is... This is what they believe. This is, there, are, there are whole college universities now been established in the United States for this purpose, to teach transhumanism, post-humanism. In fact, there's been a recent movie, Johnny Depp, it's called Transcendence. Anybody go to see that movie? Uh, watch the movie. Now, don't say Joe Boot, Pastor Joe Boot recommended that everybody, you know. <laughs> I know how these stories get around. Okay, what I'm saying is if you want to understand how this idea is now invading the mainstream um, uh, arts industry, this idea of post-humanism, watch the movie Transcendence. And this is what these people believe, that we are in control of our own evolution because we're part of the universe. We We can become, in a sense, one with all things, and we can be, literally, we can be gods. We can live forever. We can transcend transhumanism. We can transcend everything that we have previously understood to be the limitations of human existence. That you're one person in a single body with a limited lifespan, living in a particular time and place with a specific definition. We can transcend 
all of those things and take to ourselves the attributes of a god. And there is nothing new about the idea. What was the dream of the, the ancient Greeks and Romans? To become gods. To become gods. Theirs was a, was a mystical ascent to divinity. Right? That maybe if you were a great emperor, ruler, a great military leader, you would, be, you would become, you would join the gods. Uh, this is a technological acquisition of divinity. And what was the first temptation to our first parents in the garden? You will be as gods. What? Determining for yourself good and evil. That's the force of the Hebrew there. Knowing means determining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. That's the essence of the claim to godhood. That's what it means. If you want to read a book on that, actually, I just wrote the foreword for a book by um, David Hebert. Herbert. David Herbert. Uh, called Becoming God. Look out for that. Sola Scriptura. It's an important book to read. Short question for you. You yeah. mentioned when you're talking about what is science, you mentioned an author named Stark. Mm-hmm. What book were you referencing? I okay. missed it. Yeah, that's Rodney Stark. And the book is called um, uh, How the West Was Won. Sorry, not How the West Was Won. That sounds like a Western movie. Uh, It's called um, How the West Won. How the West Won. Yes. Hi. Um, Yeah, so was the question, can science determine morals? Is that what the actual topic is? Yes. So, um, now, I know that in schools today, like all the uh, textbooks, you know, they accept evolution, they teach it to our children, Mm -hmm. right? But you're saying that scientists now are starting to realize that maybe it's not as scientific as it used to be thought. Do you think, because of the teaching of our children Um, in schools, like the morals have changed. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it has to do with the evolutionary theory and everything. Do you think that this generation of children, if science proves that evolution has a lot of holes in the theory, that our children will accept that and maybe have a shift in morals? Okay, so um, first of all, let's just remind ourselves of how science works. There is no such thing as a scientific certitude because science is always open to change and modification based on new observations, supposedly. So um, even the most established... Think about this for a moment. If I were to ask you, will the sun rise tomorrow, you'd say, uh, yeah. But you haven't observed the sun rising tomorrow yet, have you? That's not a scientific statement. Now, you might say, well, it's always risen before in my experience, but your experience is pretty limited. Uh, And the fact that it rose before doesn't guarantee that it's going to rise again. That's a metaphysical belief in a law that you can't actually observe. So 
evolution, the problem, part of the problem with evolution is it's neither verifiable nor falsifiable. Because every new, because it's a religious perspective, it pure in a scientific sense, uh, it's impervious to falsification or verification today. Because every new observation is just interpreted inside of it. Have you noticed that? So whatever it is, however counterfactual it may be, there is some cockamamie way of explaining how that could fit into the evolutionary paradigm. So what I was saying was that not that evolution as a religious worldview is going to be disproved by the empirical evidence. I think that was, there's, been an, there's been inadequate evidence since the 19th century, since the, the, the whole idea was posited. Uh, we've got... Um, uh, Charles Darwin himself said that, uh, why am I not kicking fossils around in my back garden every day? Because if, if, if a gradualist model of evolution were true, there should be such innumerable transitional forms everywhere. He said they should be plentiful. He says, this is the most obvious objection to my theory. Well, after 150 years, we have less evidence today of anything that would be regarded as demonstrably transitional. So a theory was posited by a famous evolutionist, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge in the United States, called punctuated equilibria, or the fluky monster theory, as it was dubbed, that basically what happened was that evolution sped up and went really, really fast in geological terms and gave us all these new species, like the Cambrian explosion, as they call it in geology, but never left any evidence of itself. So there you have an explanation that's allegedly science that explains why there isn't any evidence. <laughs> so what, what I'm trying to say is that there are today increasing numbers of non-Christian. That doesn't make them unbiased. They're totally biased. Right? I'm just saying that there are lots of non-Christian philosophers. and so, Because right now, if you're a Christian and you're a scientist or a philosopher... Well, that's just religious. You're just bringing religion into science because they've said science is atheism, even though the foundations of science are Christian. So it's noteworthy that going back over 10 years now, uh, the um, New Scientist published an article called Bucking the Big Bang in which about 33 PhD holding physicists, astrophysicists, cosmologists, etc. said... The, age, the time of the, the era of the Big Bang cosmology is coming to an end. And I'm sure it will. And what's happening within the, the, the people are increasingly questioning neo-Darwinism, the idea that natural selection, which just is a tautology which says the survivors survive, that's all it means. There's no description of fitness. You can't open up a book on evolution and say, right, here's what fitness means. So that you can make a prediction. Science is supposed to predict things. Nobody can predict in that way. There's no definition of fitness. It's just the survivor survives. There's nothing scientific about that. So you take natural selection and random mutations. is supposed to have given us everything. All um, what we would call um, biodiversity, genetic variation, is supposed to have been the result of Natural selection. Natural selection can't work on anything that is not already a fully functioning and operative system, like a living cell, which Darwin thought was sort of some blob of protoplasm, which we now know is a factory beyond our technological ability to even fully understand. Uh, just a cell. 
that you have to have a fully functioning system before you can even talk about natural selection or mutation. Hence the problem of chemical evolution. But even then, how did these, this cell learn or develop the genetic variability to develop sight and hearing and thinking, all of those things? I mean, it's just, you have to believe in so many miracles. It's, and they talk about Occam's razor. I mean, it's, you need one miracle after another. Now, what I'm saying is that increasing numbers of scientists and philosophers are questioning that that it isn't established. It's not like, as Dawkins says, you know, it's about as in doubt as, um, you know, uh, that the, the earth orbits the sun or something like that. This is just nonsense. This is a story about origins that cannot be verified. That's what Thomas Nagel is saying. Now, we shouldn't be having our children taught that doctrine anyway. That's my opinion. We're starting a Christian school in Toronto. Castle Christian School opens in September. Doctrine of evolution is, a, is a, as it's currently conceived, and it is, in fact, it's pagan in origin, it's a pagan idea. We've tried to weld it with Christianity. It doesn't fit. So, really, we should be focusing now on educating our children in a proper understanding of science, and, yes, teach evolution as the dominant cultural hypothesis. It's a cultural myth, but we can call it a dominant scientific hypothesis about origins, and then we critique it. That's what teaching is about. That's what we ought to be doing. Now, if and when uh, that paradigm changes, if, it, if, the, if our country remains non-Christian, they're not going to be teaching the doctrine of creation and intelligent design. It'll be something else. It'll be a permutation that we... Something in Thomas Nagel's direction of the universe is actually mine. Paul Davies has talked about the universe as a quantum computer... You know, uh, the co-discoverer of DNA, Sir Francis Crick, has said that aliens brought life spores to Earth, and that's why it's called panspermia, and seeded our Earth. Some, some you know, super-advanced alien race. This is the co-discoverer of DNA. Okay, that's what he believes about, because he cannot even imagine an imaginary path to life from lifeless chemicals. So we're more likely to have something like that in a non-Christian context than the teaching of a biblical understanding of reality. So I wouldn't wait for that. Uh, we'd be waiting a very long time in, until we've re-won Canada to Christ. I, would, I think our obligation as parents is to ensure that our children are receiving a biblical worldview education and that we teach them to critically engage with all of these theories and ideas, so when they get to university, they, are able, they don't lose their faith in the first semester because a professor mocks them and says, you're so stupid because I read the moral landscape. And, you know, which is why this is how people think. They think that you know, so-and-so said this and so, and you're an idiot because you're a Christian. And often Christians sit there and they say, oh, I didn't think of that. My pastor didn't help me with that. I, I learned Bible stories. Well... Yes, but those accounts give us a worldview and understanding of reality by which the medieval era gave us science. Gave us the sciences. That's how we got it. And actually, the more humanistic we become in our thinking, we will continue with technology, but we'll be less scientific. Technology is not the same as science. It's an application of sciences. So we love technology today. So people, you know, they get their smartphone and they think, ooh, look at this, amazing. Right? And then they think, that's science. And then they hear somebody over here say, 
man was swinging through the trees X number of million years ago, or X thousand years ago, or he you know, emerged out of Africa at a certain point, and he was a knuckle walker, and they think, yeah, like my smartphone. That's science, right? Because, they, it, because the voice of the narrator and the glossy textbook and everything else, and they haven't learned to even critically distinguish between what is a metaphysical belief about reality that is attempting a hypothesis that is trying to be supported by physical evidence and technology, which is the application of our knowledge about certain uh, processes, laws, patterns, materials, which we can manipulate for our use. The Chinese had technology at the same time as us, in fact, earlier, but they didn't develop modern science. Right? They had, they, they'd learned to manipulate certain things, but they didn't have a scientific worldview that the Christian, that the Christian Europe gave us. That's Stark's thesis in that book. He's showing that's why the West won. So, Education for the Christian must be in terms of a biblical worldview. If you want to know why we've lost the culture, this is one of the primary reasons. Because you're right to identify our children and education as at the heart of this. Yeah. And well, it, it, most stats are saying that somewhere in the region of 80% of Christian young people who grow up in the church in North America have lost the faith by the age of 23. And uh, in large measure, that's because we have not been. What's astonishing, you see, is that the university is a Christian invention. They were all our universities. Oxford, the motto of Oxford University the Lord is my light and my salvation. Cambridge was a Puritan university. Harvard was a Puritan university. Yale, Princeton, these were all Christian institutions. Every major university was a Christian institution. It's the last medieval institution. We gave the world the university. And we've let it all go because of the very reason that we haven't placed the word of God at the heart of our thinking. We've not set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. And then educated and taught in terms of the faith, to pass on the faith, not just Bible stories, as you say, but a true biblical understanding of the world that is more than defensible. I've taken the biblical worldview to atheists and philosophers at different universities, and I've never been ashamed because this is the, actually, it's the only intelligible worldview. It's the only one that makes sense. And when it's defended faithfully, uh, God illuminates people's minds and hearts to see it. Now, winning an argument doesn't mean you win somebody to the faith. I've had people say to me, yep, you're right, but I want to do what I want. See you. you know, I've actually had, at universities, in fact, I was at Oxford once, say that to me. Uh, after I walk, walked them through an argument 
for human knowledge. And there he was a philosophy student. I think he was in year three or four. He said, well, I guess the only solution is silence. And I said, yeah, that's the only alternative to, to speaking and presupposing the language, logic, rationality, truth that transcends your mind and mine. He says, well, I won't say anything. And he walked away. So uh, it's, our, it's not that our worldview is indefensible that 80% of our kids are leaving. It's that we have not taught and trained and equipped young people in the faith. Now, I'm not saying they all have to be able to do this. Okay, we're not all called to that, and only a few people can do this, or are called for it, or are given the gifts for it. I can't do many other things. This is one of the things that God has given me the ability to do, uh, to articulate the faith. We've all got different callings and abilities, but we have to be ready, all of us, to give a defense for the reason, for the, the hope that is in us. That's a biblical command for everyone in the life of the church. And uh, if we were equipping our young people with that from... This, why do you think that uh, the, the, the modern state wants all-day kindergarten and wants to keep kids in, in school right through to the upper grade, uh, to the uh, late university and keep them under that influence for as long as humanly possible because the classroom is the new pulpit to preach the new faith to transform the future? That's why Kathleen Wynne, after she got back into office there, to our shame, first act was to say, the radical sex ed curriculum is coming back. That's what she's going to do. She's, going to, she's got a majority now. People can't stand in her way. Because, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the bit that you can see. And the purpose is to indoctrinate and retrain the mind in terms of a fluid, plastic vision of reality. This is, this is about utopian dreams where man is God in an equalized, utopian, static society. And where the idea of the family, ultimately of private property, of husband and wife, children, is abolished. That's their objective. And people think, oh, I've been called Joe, you're, you're a hysteric. No, this is exactly what they articulate themselves. You just have to read it. So... I don't know why I said all of that, but yes, you're right. <laughs> I think that's, that's what I was saying, I think. I'm going to uh, jump in here. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, uh, but thank you, Dr. Boot, for answering those questions. Yeah. Just before we go, uh, just a few things. Uh, first, you'll remember these salmon-colored comment cards. Uh, if you want to fill one out, there'll be people in the back with name tags. They're able to collect them. There's also a basket on the table. You can drop them in there. Um, secondly, uh, we also have books called How Good is Good Enough by a guy named Andy Stanley, as well as some mugs. Uh, if you're new with us, if you've never been here, feel free to pick the book or the mug up. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, there'll also be coffee back there if you want to hang out. If you have more questions for Joe, I imagine he'll be here for a little bit. The people with the name tags back there are also able to take any questions you have about what Joe said about this church, about Christianity, whatever question you might have. The people with the name tags are there to help you. Um, Joe will also have some of his books on sale back there. If you're interested in those, please feel free to look at them. And uh, his journal, Jubilee, is free. Uh, I know he's saying the truth because I signed up for it. It was free, and it comes to my house regularly. So feel free to sign up for that journal. It's, uh, he writes in it regularly, as well as a lot of other people that do thinking like Joe. Uh, it's a really great journal, so take advantage of that in the back. 
Lastly, um, this is something I'm really excited about. Here at the church, if you want to follow up on this discussion, if you're jazzed about what we've been talking about, science and Christianity, human values, uh, the Christian worldview and how that relates to science, we're going to have a follow-up discussion here at Temple uh, next Wednesday. So the 25th, I believe it is, this coming uh, next week's Wednesday, as it were, uh, at 6.30 p.m. in the Family Center. It's just on the other side of our building in the Family Center, 6.30. It's going to be a small group discussion for whoever comes, no matter where you're at, uh, whatever your beliefs are, just to talk about some of the things we've been talking about tonight and follow up on that, learn a bit more. So you're all welcome to join us 6.30 next Wednesday. Um, I believe that wraps everything up. So why don't we just give Dr. Brew one final round of applause. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.